You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Genesis 34. We are reading through and studying the book of Genesis. And as Pastor Alec eluded, this is a dark and sordid text. Um, I will do my level best not to add unnecessary detail to it, but I can understand uh, this was very difficult studying and I can understand if it's difficult listening to this morning, but it is God's word. It is God's God breathed and it is profitable. So this is Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. He seized her, and he lay with her and humiliated her. His soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in the livestock, were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come into the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamer spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then he will give, then we will give our daughters to you and we will make, and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored in all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it for behold, the land is large enough for them. 
Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them, let us give them our daughters. Verse 22, only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of his city listened to Hamar and to his son Shechem and every male was circumcised and all who went out to the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in their city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their houses, they captured and plundered. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed both I and my household. But they, that is the sons, the brothers, they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This, beloved, is God's holy word to us. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning. And we come to, as we've read, chapter 34 in this great and glorious history of redemption. As we have said and as we have just read, the scenes in this chapter are quite disturbing. Similar to what we discovered in the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative in chapter 19, chapter 34 just goes from bad to worse. If the end of chapter 32 was a sunrise, chapter 34 is the sun setting and deep darkness covering the land. The darkness that descends on this chapter is nothing new in Genesis, as we've said, from the murder of Abel in chapter 4 to the sons of men lying with the daughters of men in chapter 6, which provokes the divine anger of God and causes a worldwide flood in judgment to, as we mentioned, the disturbing picture of humanity with Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. The Bible unlike any other religious document, gives the most unsanitized reports on human history. Unlike any other religious document, that is to say, despite humanity's potential for great good and virtue, the Bible reports on the effects and sinister wickedness that flows through the heart of every human being. And as unsettling as Genesis 34 is, I'm grateful for it. 
Because if we were to engage a document, our religious document, our, our foundation upon which we stand, and it was utterly detached from reality, utterly foreign to what we experience, the rawness, the, the grit, the suffering of life. Maybe for a season it would feel good. Maybe, maybe it would be like a fictional novel where we can just sort of enter this space and escape from reality, but it's not reality and therefore it's not helpful. The Bible reports on humanity with unsanitizing honesty. There was no sanitizing Abraham. His failings are clearly detailed. Isaac couldn't improve on his father's legacy. And Jacob, though a converted man, is not somebody that you would be thrilled that your daughter was dating. And so our divine author, God himself, reports on humanity with raw honesty. And now in our text this morning, the sons of Jacob, the next, the next generation... The sons of Jacob take center stage in Genesis for really the first time. And these sons, of course, will go on to form the 12 tribes of Israel. And each of them would become vital characters in the shaping of redemptive history. But as we'll discover, although their desire for vengeance is understandable... And their anger is justifiable. Nevertheless, their actions in Canaan are reprehensible. So my hope this morning, my hope this morning is that we would together experience in new ways the brightness of the gospel diamond resting upon the dark backdrop of human depravity. And as a result, along with Paul the Apostle and the rest of the New Testament, we would place no confidence in humanity's ability to execute justice and retribution. But instead, our boast would be in the justice of God displayed in the cross of Christ. Our first of three scenes comes in verses 1 through 4. This is the defilement of Dinah. And it is one of, I think, the most disturbing scenes in all of the Bible. Look at verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. We don't know Dinah's motivations for going out to see the women of the land. Perhaps she's looking for companionship. She's got a bunch of brothers. And perhaps she's looking for a friend. She's looking for companionship among the Canaanite women. Some have suggested more sinister motivations. Some have suggested that she is wandering into the Canaanite women who are also prostitutes. The reality is we don't know. The text doesn't tell us what her motivations for wandering is, but we do know that she is vulnerable. She's wandering in a foreign land and she is without protection, the protection of her family, and she is vulnerable to attack. That's what we do know. 
And of course, what happens next is nothing short of devastating and disturbing. Look at verse 2. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and he humiliated her. He seized her, meaning he violently overcame her and he took her to lay with him. And the result was humiliation. This word for humiliation in the Hebrew is not mere embarrassment. Dinah wasn't merely embarrassed by what happened to her. No, the Hebrew word for humiliation here means that she was at her very core cringing from the violation. Shechem was the son of Hamor. Hamor was a ruler in a Canaanite city. He was in a place of prominence and power in Canaan. And Shechem was his son. He is described, Shechem is as, in verse 1, as the prince of the land. What's perhaps even worse than the attack and the violation is Shechem's attachment to Dinah after. He wants more from her. Verse 3 says, his soul was drawn, that is Shechem, the prince of the land. His soul was drawn to the daughter of Jacob, Dinah. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Verse 4, so Shechem spoke to his father, father Hamor, notice this, quote, saying, get me this girl for my wife. What a prince. This is not a prince. This is a spoiled little man who thinks he can take whatever he wants and orders his father Hamor to do his bidding. Get me this girl, he says. There's a moment of honesty. Dinah is a girl. She's a little girl. Shechem's use of the word Girl in verse 4 instead of woman suggests that Dinah was possibly 12, maybe 13 years old. As I said at the beginning, this chapter goes from bad to worse. The sun is setting, darkness is covering the land. And apparently, this is life in Canaan. This is life. There's no mention of reprehension or outrage from Shechem's father or anyone else in Canaan. There appears to be no consequences to the grotesque and repugnant actions of the prince. Just another day in Canaan. Well, this is not going to be just another day in Canaan. The next scene after the defilement of Dinah is a long dialogue between Hamor and his son and Jacob and his sons. And the result of this dialogue between these two families is deception. 
deception. So from defilement to deception. Deception is seen too. Look at verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. I don't know about you, but the only thing more outrageous than the rape of Dinah is perhaps Jacob's apparent lack of outrage. In just a moment, we're going to see and hear and feel the appropriate outrage of Dinah's brothers. But at least recorded, we don't see much outrage at all from Jacob. He held his peace while the brothers were with the livestock. Some have suggested that because Dinah was Leah's daughter and not Jacob's beloved Rachel's daughter, that somehow he is now less attached to Dinah and as a result he's less outraged by her defilement. Or perhaps Jacob was so preoccupied with keeping the peace in the land that as we'll see this in a moment, that he was indifferent to the outrage and the lament that this violation called for. We don't know why there isn't outrage here, but we know Jacob is a passionate man and is capable of great outrage. And yet he is surprisingly restrained in this moment. Is it because it's Leah's daughter and not Rachel's? Is it because he fears the Canaanites? Either way, it is perplexing that we don't see more reaction from Jacob. But whatever is lacking in Jacob is made up for in the reaction of Jacob's sons. Look at verse 7. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it. As soon as they heard it. They dropped whatever they were doing and they came in from the field. And the men, that is the brothers of Dinah, were indignant and very angry. Because he, that is Shechem, had done an outrageous thing in Israel. Notice, this is the first time Moses is our author. Moses is writing this account. This is the first time Moses calls Canaan Israel. He had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. Finally, Moses, our author, provides some really much-needed commentary on this dark scene. Moses records that the violation of Dinah was an outrageous thing and must not be done. Full stop. This may be commonplace in Canaan, but this must not become commonplace among the people of God. I don't have a whole lot of application for us this morning, as we'll see at the end. And sort of like, what to do? What do we do now? Give me some practical steps on how to respond to this sermon. I don't have a whole lot, but here's one application. Just because something is common in culture 
doesn't make it normal or healthy or wise. So our judgment of what is good and wise ought not to be what is commonplace in culture. Our judgment for what is healthy and wise has to be God's word alone. Just because it's common doesn't make it normal. The audacity continues. Hamor tries to convince Jacob and his sons that his son Shechem is a decent guy. He's a decent gentleman. And he'd like to properly marry Dinah. Even Shechem himself has the nerve to speak up. And he says in verse 12, Ask me, Shechem says, the one who just did the most outrageous thing in Israel. He has the audacity. Look at verse 12. Ask me for a great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give to you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. See, he is so slippery. He knew she was a girl and that's what he was saying to his father. Give me this young girl. But then he, he smooths the edges out. Give me this young woman to be my wife. I can't imagine, and I don't want to go too far in, in this, but I can't imagine being Jacob or Dinah's brothers. Essentially, Shechem is saying, I know I overcame your sister and your daughter violently and I defiled her, but I plan to treat her real good. Notice again, there's no remorse in Hamor. There's no remorse in Shechem, no apology, nothing. And then he has more audacity to appeal to economic growth. (laughs) Think of it. Jacob, what if we combined our families, our daughters, our herds, our land? What, 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 what could we do then? We could be one big, happy family. It is, a, no, it is no small miracle how Jacob's sons didn't pull their swords right then. But in the hearts of Jacob's sons was revenge. Somehow they remain collected and a dark revenge scheme is hatched. Look at verse 13 and following. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us only on this condition. Will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughter to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us, And be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. The perfect revenge plot. It's perfect, not in the sense that it's good. It's perfect because in one sense, they are telling the truth. In one sense. 
The Israelites are not to intermarry with pagan nations. They are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever like Christians. We are not to marry those who are not Christians. Israelites are not to intermarry with pagans that follow other gods. However, of course, Moses tells us that they spoke to them deceitfully. They had no intentions on following through with their promise. As Moses writes, they were deceiving Hamor and Shechem. And as we think of this, it is understandable. Their rage and their anger against Shechem is understandable. However, their actions are in no way, shape, or form permissible. Someone's actions can be understandable and at the same time not permissible. In fact, the level of darkness in this deception is really hard to fully articulate. They were using the covenant sign and seal of God's grace and promise to Israel, circumcision. They were using circumcision as a means to wound their enemy in order to take their lives. That is to say, they took a sign, circumcision, that points to life and protection from Yahweh, and they made it a pretense for murder. As some have suggested, this would be like poisoning the communion wine. Or this would be like holding someone under at baptism until dead. Taking a holy sacrament, a holy covenantal sign and using it for murder. It's hard to articulate the level of darkness and deception. So the question is, will Hamor and Shechem take the bait? Will they take the bait? Answer, yes, they do. Hook, line, and seeker, they take the whole thing. Look at verse 18. Without hesitation, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. Not only did Hamor and Shechem take the bait. They sold it to every male in the city. They sold it. If we do this thing, we will be one family. We will be rich and we will have many daughters. And every man in the city said, let's go. So we have defilement. We have deception. And now we have our final scene Genocide. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, that is, the men in the Canaanite city, when they were sore as a result of the circumcision, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers. Now, why those two? Well, first, those two were willing. And second, those two were full brothers of Dinah. They were sons of Leah as well. This was our full sister. 
you defile our sister. We're coming for you. And there's two men against a whole city. Now, some have suggested that they brought their servants as well. That's possible. The point is the whole city, at least the men are sore. They are unable to fight. And so Simeon and Levi, Leah's full-blooded brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, they took their herds, they took their donkeys and whatever else was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. And again, no rebuke from Jacob about what they had just done. Jacob's only upset because the result of their action may bring more heat on him. Look at verse 30 to the end of the chapter. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Jacob, what about the fact that they just killed every man in the city? And by the way, Dino was defiled. Oh, you've just brought a lot of heat on, on me and the family. This is not gonna this is not gonna go well for me. Thanks for, for adding more work. My numbers are few, Jacob says, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, the brother said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? In other words, we're justified. You can feel, can't you? You can feel their blood drunk thirst for revenge. Hamor and Shechem were not enough. And you can understand a bit of their logic. It's pretty straightforward. If Shechem is the best they've got, He's the prince of the land. He's the most honored in the land. And he's the one defiling women and nobody's apologizing. If he's the best they got, then the whole city needs to go. Take them all out. This is genocide. They are saying, because you plundered our sister, we will plunder your city. You took, and there's this play that on words that Moses uses, this taking, seized Dinah. They seized her. And now Moses uses the same language. They took the men of the city. They took the livestock. They seized the possession. You seized Dinah, we seize all of yours. An eye for an eye. Except it wasn't. Shechem deserved... Righteous punishment. Every man in the city. Vengeance is ours, saith the sons of Jacob. And that's how the chapter ends. And that's our Sunday morning. (laughs) Another writes in his commentary, chapter 34 
possesses no prayers, no divine revelations, no promise of blessing, and no explicit mention of God in the whole chapter. Chapter 34 simply is a story of severe trauma and pure vengeance. And yet, as dark as this story ends, our emotions as we read it is a bit mixed, isn't it? As I'm reading your faces, as I move through this text, your faces are reflecting a lot of my emotions this whole week. It's mixed. There is a piece of us that is satisfied, that is happy, glad. Maybe I'll just admit it. Maybe you you won't. The bad guys didn't get away with it. Uh, Sure, they went overboard. They got blood drunk. They kind of did their thing. But at least the bad guys didn't get away. There was repayment. There was retribution. And from our call to worship this morning, oh God, God of vengeance, oh God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, oh judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. So in one sense, we read this and we're satisfied because we love justice and we need justice. For us to have human equilibrium, we need justice. Everyone hates those movies that end with no justice. We need that. We need that equilibrium. Justice. Justice. Yeah, the guys, they lost their minds, but Shechem got what he deserved. The prince. In another sense, though, we're really disturbed not only by the defilement of Dinah, but also the fact that these guys would use circumcision, a holy sacrament, defile the sacrament in order to murder. We're disturbed by this reality. But I wonder if you're disturbed by another reality. A little bit deeper with me. I wonder if we're disturbed by justice itself. In one sense, we need it and we love it. And in one sense, it ought to scare us. As one writes, quote, if, what if the justice we hunger for would bring about our own destruction? What if the justice that we hunger for would bring about our own destruction? It is easy to accept God's righteous anger and wrath against the rapists, against the murderers, against the child abusers. It is easy to picture God bringing his righteous wrath against those. Smite them all, we say. Smite them all, O God. But it's a whole other thing to see that same anger of God pointed at us. 
Repay to the proud what they deserve, O God. But what if we're the proud? From every corner of the Bible, beloved, every corner of the Bible, this refrain can be heard. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will repay. That's why the apostle Paul says, do not return evil for evil. Here's another application. If someone does evil to you, don't do evil to them. Why, Paul? Because God will have vengeance totally and completely. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, writes this. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from becoming drunk with your blood. God is angry against sin. He's angry. The anger you felt at the defilement of Dinah is multiplied beyond what we can imagine. He hates it. He hates it. He's angry at it. But what if he's angry at you? The Bible reports that no one, nowhere will get away with anything. The injustices being shelled upon the Ukrainian people, God will judge. The Bible reports that all have sinned and fallen drastically short of God's glory and all therefore are children of wrath and deserve God's holy anger and vengeance against sin. (laughs) And so we need justice, but only so far. It's not surprising for us in the least that God would punish the guilty. It's not surprising. He has to. We need that equilibrium. We need God to be just. As unsettling as it is for sinners, guilty sinners to admit, we need God to be just. It's not surprising that God is just. What is altogether surprising is that God would punish one who is not guilty. That's the most surprising thing in all the universe. Not that God would punish the guilty, but that he would punish one who was guiltless. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, I will repay. Yes, to all of the sinners, but what about the innocent one? On the cross, Jesus was experiencing the vengeance of the Lord upon him, though he did nothing to provoke God's anger. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, listen, Jesus himself became seized and humiliated. They put a bag over his head and slapped him left and right and said, who hit you? 
He didn't do anything to deserve that. We want the bag over Shechem's head. That's who we want. We want the bag over Hitler's head. But the bag is placed over Jesus' head. Treated as a rapist, as a murderer, as a prideful, insolent. They stripped him naked, violated him, nailed him to a Roman cross. The true prince of peace got what the wicked prince of Canaan deserved. We should not wonder that God executes justice on the guilty. We should be amazed that he executed justice on the innocent son. The innocent was punished for the guilty. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. May we, beloved, experience in new ways from this dark backdrop of human depravity, may we experience the brightness of the gospel diamond resting upon the darkness of human depravity. And as a result, along with all of the Bible, may we place no confidence in the flesh. May we place no confidence in humanity's ability to execute justice. But instead, may our boast be in the justice of God displayed supremely on the cross of Christ.